I'm Charlotte Redwell and welcome to the very first episode of Ivory Tower Calling. Thank you for being here, it really means a lot. This is my first ever podcast and it's really been a labour of love and something I'm definitely still learning about, so thanks for being willing to give it a try. Go easy. The aim of this podcast is to talk to historians about their work and make it more accessible. The academic discipline of history often seems very divorced from the history we learn about in school or refer to in average conversations often because academic papers and conferences aren't designed to be read or even really seen by the public, although there are some great public engagement projects out there. So this podcast is for someone who maybe wants something a bit new, a bit different for their history intake. I think more and more these days especially, there's an understanding that the history we teach and talk about and believe in has the power to really shape how people view the world and their place in it. And I think it's really important for everyone to share that understanding of history especially for historians, and all the new things that might have happened in the field which the public might not know about. I'm a postgraduate history student myself, and I thought that this might be something that maybe I could help with. So today's first ever episode, as our mission statement, we're going to go straight in and ask just how much our view of history can be shaped by our political beliefs and where we grow up through talking about the Cold War. Before we start, I'm just going to say you can find more details about today's episode and all of our episodes at our website ivorytowercalling.com or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. We all try and post articles that we've read for researching, any books or TV shows, for example, that we mention, and generally interesting stuff that's related to what we talk about here. You can also find out more about our lovely guests, including their own publications and projects. So without further ado, let's get into the good stuff. Well, I'm here today with Dr. Leslie James from Queen Mary University of London, and our topic today is we're looking at how history is used in politics, um, and particularly at the Cold War, and Leslie's work on uh, West West African yeah. kind of communist intellectuals. Would that be a fair way of describing it? Uh, Caribbean intellectuals who end up being active in what would be the kind of pan-African world, so the Caribbean, the US, Europe, and Africa. Okay, so kind of broader... Yeah, the broader world. Okay. Um, Do you just want to kind of go straight into it then? So we're going to start off with talking about what the Cold War is, which seems like a somewhat dumb question, but actually isn't. Yeah, so... I thought I would first address the this question of well, what is the Cold War? Because in in theory, it sounds quite straightforward, but um, if you notice the way people talk about the Cold War, there's kind of slippage between speaking about the Cold War in a few different ways. So, is the Cold War a time period? When does that time period begin and end? We can talk a little bit more about that. Um, is the Cold War instead not a time period but a set of ideas? Or is it, you know, a kind of straightforward, bipolar, diplomatic, and military conflict? Or is it a stand-in term for the kind of excessive surveillance, control, lack of freedom of political thought um, at a particular time? That I think the Cold War is used and described in all of these kinds of ways. And I'll suggest a little later that all of the ways that the Cold War can be seen figure into how historical work and methods have been applied to how we study the history of the Cold War. So what is the Cold War? At a basic level, it's 
really kind of founded on an assumed clash between ideas and cultures, even if it's actually activated as military and strategic conflict. The Cold War agenda kind of aimed to transform the world based on a set of ideas that were set out as fundamentally universal. And that was a key aspect, is that they are both based on kind of universalist ideals. The American project espoused individual liberty and a market-based economy as the best way to build societies. While the Soviet system believed in collectivism and state planning. The United States emphasized voluntarism against the direction and compulsion of institutions and opposed the kind of centralization of authority that the Soviet Union was seen to represent. The Soviet Union, on the other hand, emphasized the proletariat, the working class and class conflict um, instead of individualism as a way of overcoming old or hierarchies of power. Secularism was at the heart of both projects, but the American belief in individual liberty meant that their secularism took the path of separation of church and state and the protection of freedom of religion, while Soviet communism was much more explicitly materialist in opposing spirituality, as well as more adamantly being against the kind of institution of the church. Ultimately, communism and democratic free market capitalism promised different versions of a society that would be best placed to create and share wealth, to liberate women, the poor, and the racially marginalized. All of these were claims that both projects made. Democratic free market capitalism argued that they would achieve these ends by protecting freedoms in society. Communism argued that they would achieve these things by regulating society. In the Cold War's universality and in the stated belief that religion and ethno-nationalism were a kind of scourge on society, both projects in theory said that the nation and that nationalism was um, against their projects. Narrow nationalism was kind of the antithesis of what both projects believed that they were about. But there's a few things that complicate this. First, despite the kind of supposed ideological clash, both projects share a common lineage and common traits. Rapid and efficient industrial growth are at the core of both models. Both claim to be against traditions of privilege, heritage, family, and locality. At the core of each is the belief that people could break with the past, reinvent themselves, and in this reinvention, proactively choose the communities to which they belong. In other words, identity and belonging can be chosen, which is quite a radical departure from older ideas of community. This, of course, had radical implications for nationhood and nationalism. And I would suggest that fundamentally this is why this became a global history. Ultimately, if we think about, you know, what is the Cold War, I would say this. The Cold War is rivalry between states that are ascribed to different ideological paths. The Cold War isn't necessarily ideological debate itself. Without state rivalry, the Cold War would have simply been ideological debate. But also, without ideological debate, the Cold War would have simply been state diplomacy and international relations. So it's the combination of both of those things that makes the Cold War. And what the Cold War does to the difference between communist and capitalist paths is to attach ideological positions to national identities as well. 
Okay. So I think that was a great introduction to you. Like a lot of ideas already exist in people's minds about the Cold War, but maybe they don't think to break them down in quite mm-hmm. that way. So it's like a good introduction to how unique that is as a historical phenomenon. And also why studying the Cold War is difficult to disentangle because it claims to be very vastly different worldviews and world systems but they often spoke in the same language of modernization and development, but they were diametrically opposed. So disentangling the history is quite difficult. Especially that the emphasis on breaking with the past, the the relationship that both the American dream and I guess the Marxist dream, that their vision of the past is so specific precisely because they want to move away from it. Yeah. And so this idea that in Marxist thought, I guess, that all history is the history of oppression of the worker, of the history of resources, which we're kind of going to get into a bit more later, which is why we kind of wanted to go into kind of the, the views of history that these two sides have. Obviously, Marx is the big one. Mm-hmm. What's the kind of detail of what he said and Marxist kind of thought on this? <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, not too big a question. It's, well, no, it's, well, it, we can do big questions. Um, I mean, the, the Marxist interpretation of history has been reinterpreted by people as you go. But fundamentally, if you're following a Marxist interpretation of history, you emphasize a kind of materialist component to that history. So in order to understand why people make the decisions that they make in the past, um, we have to look at the material forces that are at play that dictate how people make decisions Mm. about the past. So that's looking at things like coal mining or production of industrial goods, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's looking at what influences people's labor, people's economy, but also, you know, the forces that are at play that influence how people make decisions rather than just individual history itself. So it's moving away from an idea of individuals as autonomous beings who move in the world without larger forces at play. And so Marxist history is often usually looking at those larger forces that are at play. Mm. And that kind of feeds into the the view of this, the stages of society, which it which Marx introduces, which is yeah. the capitalist society is a necessary step on the way to a communist utopia because it reveals the corruption of the capitalist elite. As I have understood it. And also that, I mean, capitalism is what creates the various classes that have emerged into the class conflict that we see. So it's, it's capitalist forces that create an industrialized proletariat, create a middle-class bourgeoisie that are different class formations from, say, medieval society, where class formations were more in on religious lines. So capitalism is a necessary stage in the phases that, of history that Marx outlines. So your particular work looks at kind of the Pan-African movement and its interpretations and uses of communism and kind mm-hmm. of their own view on it. So what did that look like for them? I mean, kind of what was that view? So the big shift is into Marxist-Leninist history because it's Lenin who really outlines most clearly an understanding of imperialism as he calls it as the next stage, as the highest stage of capitalism. And so what, what Lenin does 
for people who live with colonialism is to outline imperialism as a system, as a force that is related to and comes out of capitalism, and that people like the people that I'm studying who live in the Caribbean and in Africa can understand imperialism as a structure and a, as a system that they can then figure out how to attack. So does that mean from their perspective they're kind of more easily to kind of compare maybe across borders and say we're under a British system and you might be under a French system but fundamentally yeah. they're the same? And yes. Yeah, it allows them to connect their struggle with other people who live under various forms of imperialism, certainly. And I think if I can just add that very specifically for the people that are coming from the Caribbean who I study, the Marxist interpretation of the rise of capitalism makes perfect sense because they have come out of a system of not only slavery but plantation life. Almost like a pure, perfect expression of that, I guess. Yeah, and it's actually it's actually Caribbean intellectuals who are the ones who make the argument that the plantation is, is the earliest form of industrialized labor. The plantation is the place where agricultural meets the factory because of the very nature of sugar, which has to be boiled and manufactured before it can be um, sent as a commodity across the ocean again. So it's the meeting of the kind of factory and the farm labor in the Caribbean that allows Caribbean intellectuals to make the arguments that they do about systems of production within capitalism and imperialism. Yeah, and I guess processed sugar for, for people like in Britain and Europe would probably be one of the first industrial products they would have had in terms of it being a kind of processed, ready-made, compared to like in medieval and earlier where it was it came in like a massive sticky cone and you had to right. refine it. It yeah. would have been already done somewhere else. That and cotton would have been the ones. Then it's the nature of sugar which can't be wholesale shipped before it's being manufactured first. Which means that manufacturing can't just be in Britain, it has to be in the colonies as well. So it breaks down the old kind of mercantilist model. So communism is almost like a uniting factor in this pan-African movement, this anti-imperialist movement. So what extent did they make it their own? Was it a different kind of strain almost from what we might think of in Russia? They make it their own, firstly, in really forcing the issue. I mean, so it's not just in Africa and the Caribbean, but a lot of people from the empire start to engage in communism, but push the Soviet Union in particular and their European comrades to see imperialism as part of that system. And it's a, it is a fight. It's not necessarily accepted by European Marxists and Soviet Marxists. But the way that they make it their own occurs particularly in Africa in the 1950s, 60s and 70s, you get the emergence of, of what people like Julius Nyerere and Tanzania would call African socialism. And so the argument of some African Marxists is that African society is communitarian. It has socialist values underlying it. And so it's not um, necessarily that you can export communism wholesale, but that they can take parts of it, which makes sense to a kind of African communitarian 
lifestyle and make their own version of what they deem African socialism. Mm. Which again brings in this idea of the association with the past and the societies of the past and kind of saying in one sense we want to reject them because it hasn't worked for us but in another there's still a communist element in the past it just wasn't able to thrive. Yeah, it's very much the searching for, and so this, I mean, we're speaking of the same period of the Cold War in the 50s and 60s and 70s, where they're emerging into independence. And what is very clearly articulated is that they don't want to go completely back to the past. They want to break with the past. Mm -hmm. But they want to find new models and create new societies. And to do that, they end up trying to also look for African roots that they can connect to in order to liberate themselves in their own way, but also take from other models. I find colonial history is so fascinating. Countries emerging independence is so fascinating because it's this really interesting moment at which almost anything is possible and it's yeah. a real moment of intellectual experimentation and kind of searching for new possibilities that... Yeah, and this is unique. very... I mean, over and over and over again, that's what you see people saying is that they they want to create something new. It's not, they're not, they don't want to go back to the way things are done. They want to be a new model and they want to be a new model to the world. There's an idea, many people articulate the idea of a kind of a new humanism in which, and Franz Fanon is most famous for this, that there's a new humanist world that can be created that is going to be a break with the past. The Marxist thought is a kind of sincere part of that, wanting to change not just who rules society, but the, the fundamental kind of rules that govern it. But they also use that connection, we were talking about this before we started recording, to kind of leverage, leverage themselves politically in their association with the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in the context of the Cold War, and this is where, you know, one of, how do we define the Cold War? Is it is it a kind of clash of alliances and beliefs, this is where the Cold War is interpreted, and rightly so, as something that's constraining, because you have to find alliances, and so you are forced often into aligning either with the Soviet Union or with the United States in order to create these new societies, to gain the resources that you need, or increasingly China becomes a part of this. And we can speak about a little bit more about this later. It's not just alliances with the US and the Soviet Union emerge. People try to create all new kinds of alliances. But what it does is it constrains how people can articulate their ideas about how they want to create their new societies because they often have to fit it into the framework of Cold War rivalries. So it's not so much that they're using it to leverage themselves, but it's more that they're in this position where they have certain kind of aims and objectives that they want to reach in terms of having independence and kind of starting a new government and all these things, but they kind of need to kind of figure themselves into this broader picture somehow. Yeah, because they're, they're I mean, these position. are new states who are typically quite weak, but a lot of historians debate now, I mean, do we see this as weak states who are kind of at the will of this Cold War rivalry that forces them into positions? Or do they, I mean, they do try to manipulate it for their own ends to try and get what they need from this rivalry Mm -hmm. as well. Um, So there's a bit of negotiation going on um, as well. But I did want to add one other point to this issue of 
um, you know, this creation of new societies is that there's immense hope um, and what that means for how we evaluate this period and this history as well is that there's, there's an immense hope that they can start again and create new societies. And of course, the reality in which you can actually do that is going to be very difficult. And so we fall into evaluating, well, the, these independence movements failed, um, but this, the extent to which they could ever live up to that hope I think we should keep an eye on the, the mm -hmm. kind of immensity of the hope and extent to which they could ever live up to that. As a comparatively young country, it's not necessarily surprising, but mm -hmm. like when you're a new country, you do have issues with your, your constitution and your government, and it, it takes a while to kind of work through those yeah. almost, and there's always kind of bumps to overcome yeah. and difficulties. And yeah, and those bumps and difficulties in the Cold War context means that the mistakes you make have greater consequences. Mm. Um, there's very little room for maneuver. Now kind of changing topics a little bit. We obviously have our own historical and kind of intellectual tradition within the UK that in a comparable way shapes our own view of history and our position in the world. I mean what you're talking about is a kind of Whig view of history which would be also what we would term high political history. The, what we want to do when we understand history is to study the great men, the great leaders, because they're the ones who have influence, they're the ones who have power, and they're the ones who are the force of history. Mm. This is Whig with W-H-I-G, not, not Whig as in yeah. the <laughs> as in the political party. Although is... it's, it's a nice play on the history. <laughs> they did wear a lot of wigs at the time, yeah. to be fair. I'm sure while they were writing this thing. But yeah, this idea of the great man theory of history is the kings and queens kind of view of history. Mm -hmm. And then there's this also kind of separate idea, but it overlaps quite a lot with the idea of the march of progress hugely influential, I think, we don't realise how influential that is in right. everyday life still. Yeah. This idea that history is a kind of narrative towards progress that is developing over time has become hugely influential. But I think, as any good historian would know very quickly, is completely false. That's <laughs> not true at all. <laughs> But I think it's it's really funny that in the last two years, I think that the this idea that that suffering somehow belongs in the past, right. particularly for the West, I think the idea that like all the horrible stuff was over with the Second World War, yeah, and it was like a you know civil rights got better and individual liberties got better and poverty got better and now it's all great, and then in the last two years, people have been like, oh no, it's all going downhill again. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, it's most clearly articulated. I mean, I, I don't want to say that I don't sometimes probably think this way too, but the, I, the way that I think that it's most daily uh, articulated in, in our lives is the extent to which we say, you know, it's 2019. How could this be happening in this day and age? This idea of the march of progress and the enlightenment and that goes on all at the same time and then really kind of suffers a blow with World War One. Yes. And I think, again, if we're kind of comparing it to today and people make the comparisons with, I feel like I'm living in 1913 mm -hmm. for a reason, which is it kind of, you know, struck a blow to that kind of romantic idea of history of the progression of man and yeah. so forth. And then 
we get to World War Two, and then obviously that is again a huge blow to it, and then we kind of get to the the Cold War, which is where you take over. <laughs> <laughs> the the blow is also that. This idea that we should we can study and understand history only by looking at um, the most powerful. I guess that you describe them as like a set of interlinked ideas, Mm -hmm. which in kind of historical academic texts you often see described as variously the Whig view of history, the liberal view of history, the capitalist view of history, all these different terms, not as anywhere near as cohesive. I mean, that's a good way of describing it because they're not formulated in isolation from one another. They're formulated as responses to one another. And so is the shift in the 1950s and 1960s as well. So But let me start with this. I mean, the earliest understandings of the Cold War are that it's understood from a political history perspective and from a high politics, diplomacy, international strategy perspective. So the earliest histories of the Cold War, which are made during the Cold War, usually, um, and really predominate as the histories of the Cold War until almost the end of the Cold War, are histories that look at um, institutions like the United Nations, but mainly high political rivalries, diplomats, um, presidents, and key leaders. Those are the histories that are written, um, understanding that, and the main question is, what is driving decision-making at particular times? Why does the Cold War shift um, in these rivalries? And to answer those questions, historians looked at diplomatic history and policy and um, policy makers. So that was the narrative of the Cold War history that we got for the most part. And it's still the history that most people, I know that I did, learn in school today. It's the textbook version of history. The textbook version of history looks at maybe the kind of atomic rivalry, the space age, at the kind of high rivalry level. Um, which meant that it was mainly also a history that was focused on the Soviet Union and the Euro-American world. In the period that the Cold War is occurring, one of the shifts in British history, I mean, you brought us back to British history, was a shift towards social history. That happened with work that changed British history to start to look at labor history history of workers, history of trade unions, people's history. So that was happening during the Cold War, but the change to apply people's history and social history to the Cold War didn't happen for historians really until after the end of the Cold War, um, if that's clear. But by the 1990s, you get the influence of Marxist historians and social history, which says, well, wait a minute, We have to understand the Cold War not just as high politics, but also as histories of people's daily life. Once historians started to say, well, the Cold War is is an ideological clash, it's a clash of culture and civilization, because it's wrapped up in ideas about modernizing the world and changing the world and universal values, well then, in order to understand the Cold War, we have to look at you know, the cultural work that is produced, the pop culture that emerges, and 
music and um, architecture and art, all of those things were actually how the Cold War rivalry in many cases was displayed and performed. Mm -hmm. um, and so you get a lot of new histories that look at, um, for example, how the U.S. sends famous jazz musicians out into the world. So Louis Armstrong and Dizzy Gillespie travel the world as part of U.S.-funded operations to kind of prove their society and their values. And to kind of make America seem kind of sexy and cool. And, <laughs> and sexy and not racist. Um, I mean, that's... And so there's... If, if I can mention a few books, one is Penny Von Eschen's Satchmo Blows Up the World, in which she follows the U.S. attempts to use jazz musicians. And, but the idea was that, you know, if we send out Louis Armstrong into the world, then we will seem less racist at the same time as the civil rights movement is happening. So um, there's a lot of, of strategy involved. So one of the turns was to look at um, cultural and social history. And then the final turns that happened were to recognize that in all of this, in all of these social and cultural histories as well, that the Cold War was not bipolar. It was multipolar. It involved China. It involved Yugoslavia, it involved India and Angola and Cuba and Algeria. And these are all nodes that are manipulating and acting very much for themselves in the Cold War context. And that's kind of where a lot of research has moved. I'm the first book to take this turn was Arnie Westad's Global Cold War. The extent to which Cold, the Cold War has become a global history has just grown by leaps and bounds ever mm -hmm. since then. I mean, I think that even, you know, as much as we like to kind of throw dirt type of version of history, there was a small section on the global Cold War in my history textbook when I was in GCSE. So okay. I it's, which I think is remarkable the way it's filtered down in a way that you don't see in other topics. Because yeah. I think a lot of the time the the developments that go on within kind of academic history often take 20, 30 years or more to kind of get anywhere in yeah. terms of moving beyond the academic sphere. That's true. Um, hopefully it seems like an obvious place to say, well, wait a second, this is a much bigger story. And then if I can add the other change that's happened, and partly because of the kind of global perspective and global turn, is to question the periodization of the Cold War. Because again, if the Cold War is... Um, not just a diplomatic clash, but a kind of ideological clash, then we have to start before 1947, which is when typical Cold War histories start. We have to start with the anti-communism that emerges once the Soviet Union, after the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, and that perspective is quite obvious from the history that I work from and any kind of colonial history because anti-communism is very strong in the colonies in the 1920s and the 1930s and so yeah and also it makes much more sense from not just the colonial perspective but just broadly any country outside of the us and the ussr yeah because even britain that was kind of you know communist party and fascist party and kind of anti-demonstrations against both of those which was going on at that time so yeah it makes more sense from the perspective of 
these are competing ideas and they're competing all over the world, not just... I think the work is now being done to realize that that's also true for European history. So if we think about the 1920s and, and certainly by the 1930s, once fascism is on the rise, the clash of ideologies between... I mean, fascist was fun, fascism was fundamentally anti-communist. But there's the line of the King's speech where okay. the, the Queen's dad and the future Edward VIII, I think, at that point, okay. where they're having the, an argument about the Stalin versus Hitler and right. which side you support. And Edward VIII says, don't worry about Stalin, Hitler will sort him out. And then the Queen's dad's like, well, who's going to sort out Hitler? <laughs> and, like, and what messes all of that up and really confuses everybody is when you get the... Nazi, the Ribbentrop-Molotov pact, and you get this, the, the pact between the Nazis and the Soviet, which doesn't seem like it should have happened. Um, so then everybody has to reevaluate what these ideologies are. Coming back to the, the move to social history, and in a way, the kind of the, the indirect products of Marxism kind of come full circle, and yeah. their kind of intellectual descendants within history, in terms of, is then brought about on the study of the Cold War. Right. Yeah, which I guess you would, would you consider yourself a part of that? Yeah, I mean, I think when I was starting to do my history, I was taking in and absorbing all of the changes to not differentiate social, political, cultural history. We have to understand um, all of those together. I was definitely benefiting from a move to recognize the relationship between decolonization and the Cold War, which are more than simply happening at the same time. And that's a change that's happened in the last 20 years, really. So we were talking earlier about about George Padmore, Mm -hmm. who's one of the really kind of important figures within this. Mm -hmm. So would you maybe like to kind of explain a bit more about who he is and what he's about? So George Padmore was born in the Caribbean in Trinidad, in the British colony of Trinidad. He became a really influential organizer of the movement of Pan-Africanism, a Marxist Mm. interpretation of um, Pan-Africanism. I mean, Pan-Africanism espoused a number of different ideologies. But he he went to the United States to go to university because there was no university in the British Caribbean. He joined the Communist Party once because they were quite active in anti-racism in the United States. And he became very prominent very quickly. He was a great speaker. He was recruited to the Soviet Union and he was elected to the Moscow Soviet. He led the communist international movement in the Soviet Union had various components in the empire, and he led what was referred to at the time as the Negro Bureau. So he became a very influential Marxist, but then he broke with the Soviet Union when he realized that Stalin didn't really care about the empire Mm -hmm. Um, by the mid-1930s. But he remained a Marxist for the rest of his life. So he broke with Stalinist communism, but he remained a Marxist. Some people think that when he broke with the Communist Party, then he just stopped being a Marxist. But again, one of the kind of ways that historians are nuancing things is to recognize that there's, within the Cold War, there's a difference between saying that you're communist and saying that you're Marxist and following Marxist Mm -hmm. ideas. Well, I guess it's kind of vaguely analogous to perhaps still being like a practicing Christian, even if you don't go to church, kind of your association with the official organization doesn't 
necessarily mean you don't believe in the ideas. Right. And, I mean, he had a very fraught relationship with the Soviet Union because he still believed that the Soviet Union espoused a propaganda that they had decolonized the former Russian Empire and that they were um, a racially liberatory society. And um, he... He didn't necessarily reject that, interestingly. So he's, it, he's a very complicated figure, but he becomes very influential for anti-colonial movements. So he is one of the people who really takes Lenin's ideas um, and makes them his own. And he writes British history books. He writes the history of Britain's rule in Africa. He writes a bunch of books about the history of European rule in Africa in particular. And he also is based in London for most of the rest of his life. So that's he's based in London from 1935 to 1957. And in that time, he's kind of the meeting point. Any, any figure from anywhere in the empire, not just Africa and the Caribbean, who comes to London, um, the 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 the, many of them would ask, where's George Padmore? Can I talk to George Padmore? Because he was the kind of, he was the, he was the person that connected everybody. Mm. He would get activists and political leaders to meet one another. He would copy art, newspaper articles and send them out so that news was getting circulated. Um, and he mentored a lot of the first, his most famous for kind of mentoring Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana. He's friends with Jomo Kenyatta, who's the first leader of Kenya. Um, a lot of the first leaders in, Af in Af independent African states um, were had connections to Padmore. He was giving them history. He was giving them um, a kind of interpretation that they could use to argue against imperialism. Mm -hmm. And so that is... Um, what he's most well known for, but he's also a historian. So that's partly why I'm interested in him is that, um, he writes very unapologetic history. Um, you know, there's usually a preface in which he says, this is, this is my background. This is why I'm writing this history and I make no apology about it. My aim is to end the British Empire. Um, and so he writes, um, British imperial history very clearly from that perspective. Mm. I think we, um, in the the course last term, we read one of his articles when he was staying in Algeria, or was that someone else that I'm thinking of? Um, when he was, it would not be him if he was staying in Algeria. It might be Morocco. It was definitely North Africa. Okay. I can't remember. <laughs> Just kind of dredging up things from my memory at this point. Was it Aimé Césaire? It, it might have been Aimé Césaire or Yann Fanon, who were also both Caribbean, um, French Caribbean intellectuals, who Al Fanon ends up in Algeria as a psychiatrist who works during the Algerian Civil War. Yeah, I think I'm pretty sure it was him. Um, and Aimé Césaire... Um, stays, goes, and works. Um, he becomes the mayor of, of Fort-de-France and uh, he becomes a political leader in Martinique in his home in the Caribbean. But it could be, I mean, Fanon has written two of the most influential books, The Wretched of the Earth, which was published just weeks before he died. 
um, of cancer in 1961, and black skin, white masks, which have been hugely influential for describing the nature of colonialism and the nature of racism. Yeah, I think it was the latter one that okay. you read, I think. But I remember it's, it's fascinating because these kind of people, George Padmore and Franz Fanon and the way that they, they move around the world and they really are like global people and yeah. they have these connections everywhere and their kind of influence extends so far even though most people might not have ever heard of them. Yeah. And they're, and they are, I mean, it's worth saying, um, and Padmore said this, that they recognize that part of what facilitates that is precisely the empire that they want to end. So one of the kind of complicating factors also for these people is that they are using the nodes of empire, the communication lines, the telegraphs, mm. the postal service, in order to get their message out. They're traveling around the world precisely because of all of the connections that empire has facilitated. But they also believe that at the core it's being harmful and they're trying to end it. But they know, and, and Padmore also very clearly says that he can work better from London because there's more freedom there. Mm -hmm. um, and so he can write and say a lot of things that he would not be able to get away with if he had stayed in Trinidad. Um, because but he's more kind of visible and there's more kind of... I guess not. It's not run in the same way. I well, that's precisely it. Yeah. So, I mean, colonial, the rule of colonial difference meant that um, he potentially would have been incarcerated for sedition many times over for what he wrote. But he that doesn't apply in London. So he also recognizes the kind of fraught kind of tension of being in a position where he has a little bit more freedom and where he had it's he's partly using um to his own advantage uh what the what the imperial system has mm -hmm. facilitated which again is always this like conflict whether it's with kind of marxist and soviet thought or the kind of weird ideas of you know freedom of speech i guess and kind of those protections mm -hmm. but there's always this kind of negotiation between these two sides and the fact that you might kind of subscribe to the ideals but then the practicalities are different but you have to use those yeah. practicalities you have to use the the kind of end results of a system you don't agree with mm -hmm. but then also you can't escape from so yeah it's always this kind of having to live in the world and the realities of it. Yeah, and I mean, you've tied that together really well because part of the point <laughs> to tie it back to, you know, how we think of and how we do history is that it's incredibly messy. And in terms, and, you know, in in this case, the, the march of progress and liberty and freedoms, Padmore and many other colonized intellectuals were saying was happening in one place and not in another by the same government, or by the same kind of governmental system. So the freedoms and equalities that existed in Britain don't exist in its empire. Um, and so the contradiction of that was what Padmore and um, a lot of the people that he interacted with and work with, worked with were trying to make more visible. 
for the for the British. I mean, he was writing not just for his his books were often banned in that that was the other irony is that his books, which are written for a British audience and an African audience, were often banned in Britain or in sorry in Africa. So they so they can't, they're not reaching the kind of main people he wants to reach almost. Right, but his audience is always both because he's also trying to recognize that many British people, I mean, as he would say, don't know what is being done in their name. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of what he was trying to do was also write for a British audience. And kind of gain allies within that mm-hmm. that kind of sphere as well. And I think the, that kind of that kind of conflict between the kind of the ideology and then the practicalities of getting to a place where you could bring that ideology to a being true and being actually the way that you run your country and run your government is is so interesting. Because like I said, it's messy. And I imagine that with it's still kind of comparatively recent history. Yeah, kind of fifties and sixties. Yeah. Certainly by my standards as someone who does medieval history. Yeah, it's very recent and there's a lot of gaps. There's a lot we don't know yet because we don't have access to the material. Mm. But I was kind of I'm interested in I guess the as a medievalist, I don't often run into the same kind of ethical quandaries that colleagues who study more recent history yeah. might do. And especially around something like colonialism, which is still very much kind of actively affecting the world today still, mm-hmm. and still kind of raises a lot of emotions and tensions and there's still a lot of problems resulting from it. Yeah. So kind of how has that kind of come into your own work and something that you've had to kind of deal with? Yeah. Absolutely, because uh, well, I don't. I don't know if it's only because it's my work. I think that we can extend this backwards, but certainly, this period, because of the reckoning with colonial history, what that is, is very difficult for people to deal with. And so, I kind of, I do have to think about. How I present um, these stories, but and not just how I present them, but who I choose to focus on. So I think that's one of the main ways that I've tried to deal with it is to focus on the histories and the stories that have been marginalized um, as a way of thinking about it. But there's a lot of there's a lot of problems also with. I mean, anytime you're dealing with histories where family members might still be alive, um, where you might rely on oral history to a certain extent, all of those questions come into play because how you write about people deeply matters. Mm. And you have to be aware of as well. And I'm, I admit this is something that I'm, con- I'm conscious of, especially in this episode, is as a white person yeah. and a white kind of academic looking at these subjects it's almost not uncomfortable or I guess uncomfortable to a certain extent but an awareness that like there's a almost like a missing colleague beside you yeah should be there yeah that isn't and it's wanting to kind of like you said use use that to kind of get stories that may have otherwise been marginalized yeah yeah, um, I mean, it's a huge... So what I've tried to learn how to do is is that I 
so I'm, I am a white Canadian woman. Um, why on earth am I writing the history that I'm writing? Um, I mean, I could, I could say a lot of, I, I, when I started writing about George Padmore, I understood him as, I related to him as a historian, as, and a lot of what he thought, I found a lot of commonalities that I could, uh, that I could engage with. Um, but I also think that there's a project of listening that needs to happen. And so I try as, as a first rule to start from a point of listening, um, before shaping and forming my opinions. Um, and I had something else to say, but I forgot. Oh, and also to acknowledge and recognize first and foremost. And when I started to finish this project and start to talk about it with people, it was really important that I acknowledged and said, you know, the person that I'm writing about was someone very influential and important, and there's not been a lot of work on him. And why is it that I am the one that's doing it? Well, part of the answer is that I have had the resources to do it. I had the I had, you know, all of the institutional privileges of growing up in the system that I grew up in that allowed me to get the funding to do this project. Um, and so the first thing is to recognize and acknowledge that, that, um, as something that's part of the, the gap that we still need to address and to fulfill. Um, because it's certainly not true, as Padmore and many of the people that I write about attest to, that there, that there weren't um, people in Africa and the Caribbean who were immense intellectual forces who were working on this. But they've been... Um, sidelined and silenced um, and the task is to encourage um, encourage everybody to take that up a little bit more mm -hmm. um, I think that particularly like relates well to to what you're saying about the the way that these voices have been sidelined but also the kind of the institutional privileges that come with being born in a western country and being able to go to university is I imagine there's a certain level to which, particularly, for example, if you're studying imperial or colonial history, it's much easier to do that from the country that was the metropole of that mm -hmm. empire. So, but I imagine there's probably far more sources in London on that kind of thing, certainly from the British administration perspective, yeah. than there might be in, in the countries that they were administrating for... A whole host of reasons because they've had conflict since, or yeah, maybe no one just had the funding at the time to make an archive out of these things. Yeah, yeah. The there is a great irony that a lot of the archival sources are here. So I can go. I'm now on a new project on newspapers in the Caribbean and in West Africa, and I can access many of them at the British Library. Um, and they're microfilmed. Now, that doesn't mean, I have been to every, I mean, I go and do work in every one of those places because there are things that you can get there um, that you can't, but they're massively under, they're, you know, underfunded and facing a number of challenges, um, not least of which that a lot of the resources once, um, I mean, certainly in the case of Britain, once they departed, they 
those all of their files, all of that stuff mm-hmm. moved with them. So the colonial administrations, when they packed up and left, took all the kind of documents and the archives and things? M- many of them. Mm-hmm. Some of them, I mean, if you go to Ghana, to the archives, the archivists there are really good um, and really um, working to preserve the material. And you can find archival stuff there that you can't find here. Um, but a lot of stuff was either destroyed or shipped back um, to Britain once um, once they left. And he's certainly a lot of the kind of what they would deem sensitive. And mm. what that was is, is, question, is, I mean, who was making decisions about what was sensitive and what was not is actually something that I think was, is worth looking into. But anything deemed sensitive would most likely not have stayed. Um, it would have been either destroyed or brought back. Um, and we know that that's true um, much, again, much more, much more recently. So it's, there is a problem in disparity of resources, which means that um, a lot of my colleagues in Ghana and Nigeria um, can't, are, are under-resourced in what they can do. Um, and so part of what we need to do to address that disparity is, is, to, distract, is to just dis- address the disparity that is making sure that African historians um, have the support to do the work that they are doing, um, because they certainly are doing it. Um, it's just that there is an obvious disparity of resources. Mm. No, I was researching because we're kind of four episodes in now, yeah. and I've uh, got one postponed, and then I'm kind of trying to plan the next five. And I really would love to do an episode specifically about archives, and particularly about how people think of archives as being incredibly dull and dry, and why would you ever want to talk about that on a podcast, <laughs> and how on earth would you make that interesting? But it actually is interesting in the way that it's not like someone just went up and rounded up all the pieces of paper they could find within a hundred mile radius. Like mm-hmm. somebody collected those onto their bed and then donated them to a museum and they had significance then. And then yeah. who gets to make the archives? And trying, and I specifically wanted to kind of, to look at race as a massive mm the disparity in mm-hmm. the archives along that line yeah. in Britain is huge. Yeah. And the way that it affects and runs internationally as well, like you were saying. Yeah. Trying to find like a person of colour who is a historian who is specialised in that topic is difficult. Yeah. Because it's just there just aren't that many. And I didn't realise to what extent that was true until I started kind of looking into it. And saying that was like, oh no, that's like a, it's worse, so much worse than I thought. Yeah, well, as the Royal Historical Society report, I don't know if you've spoken about that in any of this so far, but no, I have. I did read it in the course of yeah. So when that, uh, as the Royal Historical Society report very clearly says, which came out this autumn, history is one of the worst disciplines in the kind of arts and humanities sphere for. people of color. Um, and so, I mean, I, I've, I've talked about this um, 
in some of my classes with my students and what this is what this initiative what this report should be doing is not a box box ticking exercise if it became a box ticking exercise that would be a real problem but we have to start from saying well, why is that the case there's a, clearly a system of privilege um, that is occurring which is disincentivizing certain people to pursue um, history um, and as the the debate that the Royal Historical Society um, hosted in December made very clear it's not that um, it's not that families in Britain you know families of color don't talk about history I mean they talk about it around the table all the time mm-hmm. it's 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 not that there's it's not it's not that it's not there but it's not there institutionally mm-hmm. the key point is that it's not there institutionally um, and in terms of archives I mean there is a lot of work from African historians um, there's a great there's some great work on what were called tin trunk art Tin, tin trunk historians. So you get a lot of African historians and a lot of African work in the 20th century by, you know, just, they were not professionals. They were just people who collected and wrote wrote local histories. Um, and just wanted to kind of preserve that and be involved with it. Yeah, and it there are collection, huge collections in their homes. And so they're not contained in institutional archives. But there's a lot of um, archival history that's there. You just have to look for it outside of of the institutions. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is, uh, and and that again kind of gets at different layers of the history that's told. Mm. I guess the kind of thing, the, the call to arms almost is, we need to kind of expand our historical interest beyond just Britain and Europe. And and because there's immense amounts that we can learn from it. I mean, I learned about Marxist history from Caribbean intellectuals, mm-hmm. not from European intellectuals. Um, and so there's, Im- there's immense amounts that we can learn by expanding the historical vision. And it's really interesting. And I think it's so... It's so fascinating for me getting a completely kind of new perspective on it that I, I just not not through any kind of active oh I'm not interested in that but yeah. just simply kind of hadn't heard that much about it before and kind of just didn't really know existed and it's great to be able to kind of find that you know this whole new historical worlds have opened and mm-hmm. it's great to be able to go in to do that so do you have any things that I start to wrap up now. Yeah. Do you have any things that you would like to plug? Do you have any books coming out soon? Or? I have, um, well, this topic was useful because I've just been working on um, a piece on for a Cambridge history, a three-volume Cambridge history of nationhood and nationalism. And I've written something on nationhood and nationalism during decolonization in the Cold War. Um I have a book on decolonization in the Cold War, also along with um, my book on George Padmore. Um, And I'm part of, actually the thing that I'd like to plug is that I'm part of a research network, um, which is called the Afro-Asian Research Collective, um, which has had some funding from the Arts and Humanities Research Council. And to come back to your issue of archives, 
what we did um, to start the project three years ago now was we're all nerdy archivists and we went to an archive together. There was about eight of us. We spent a week um, staying in the same place, eating our meals together and working in the archive together. And we've written a manifesto, um, which is in the Radical History Review Journal, in which we argue for collaborative research. So what we're trying to say is that to do world history, to do these kind of big, to get at all these connections, we can't do that as individual historians. We have to start to work together a little bit more. And so working in the same archive together, where we all sat and you know, ran across the room when we had a question, when I didn't know who some, when a Malaysian character came into an archive I was looking at, I could run across the room and ask my colleague who was an expert in that field. So I'm plugging collaborative um, forms of doing history. Oh, so can we find your manifesto online or... Uh, yes, you can. So that we have a blog called Afro-Asian Visions which is on Medium, um, and there's lots of different contributors to that. And as usual, we'll have a full list of all the books mentioned and, uh, and kind of Leslie's work and the things that we've talked about today will all be on our website, which is ivorytowercalling.com. So if you're interested in this topic and want to find out a bit more, you can always go to that um, and kind of have a look at what we, we've got on there. So great. Thank you, Leslie. For Thank you. Today. Goodbye, everybody. And if you liked what you heard here today, like I said, you can go to our website, ivorytowercalling.com, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, but most importantly, rate, review and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're on. If you're listening via a web browser, you can still go to a podcast platform and leave us a review. It's massively helpful for increasing the visibility of the podcast and getting the word out. So thank you again for listening, and I will see you next time. Bye.